On Monday, July 27th, 2020, I conducted a series of live streaming interviews to discuss voting rights, voter suppression, and the upcoming 2020 election. This was one of those interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Bernard L. Fraga. Dr. Bernard L. Fraga is a political scientist whose research and teaching examines American electoral politics, racial ethnic politics, and mass and elite political behavior. He is an associate professor of political science at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Fraga's 2018 book, The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and the Political Inequality in a Diversifying America, provides the most comprehensive analysis to date of race and voter turnout. I think I have your mic off. Let's see. Did I do that? I oh, did that. You, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. How are you doing? How, I'm good, Bernard. How are you? I'm doing great. And uh, I'm really, really happy to be here today and be part of this awesome day of thinking about, you know, what's to come in the next hundred days. Absolutely. And I, I've been talking about your book with my guests all day long because to me, it's really exciting. Um, to see a different way of looking at elections and voter turnout. And um, so I'm just thrilled to talk to you about this. I believe that every political strategist should have a copy of your book and read it. (laughs) I really believe that. And uh, when I was talking to Julie about that today, she said, yeah, you know, you always hope that your book leaves just beyond the academic realm, that it, it makes it into other hands. So I, I highly recommend this book. So I want to talk to you about your book, The Turnout Gap. Um, I just, I actually want to know how you even started thinking about writing this book. Was this the original book that you were going to write? Well, it's it's funny you ask that. Uh, I don't know, maybe you had some uh, inside information about, you know, the way that I was planning this. But, um, you know, I, I've been studying voter turnout for a long time. Um, it's something that I worked on graduate school, thought a lot about, um, thought about the legacy of people like John Lewis. Um, you know, may he rest in power and, you know, thinking about, you know, all that he did, but thinking about the interconnectedness of the struggles of different racial, I think, minority groups. And I was yes. also thinking a lot about, um, as I was finishing graduate school, um, you know, the kind of the triumphant tone that many people were taking with Obama's reelection. And then the Shelby yes. v. Holder decision in 2013, Supreme Court saying, you know, all these problems are behind us. You know, black turnout now exceeds white turnout is what they said in the South, in, you know, the very places that were the worst areas, even continuing today for voter suppression. They said, we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore. It's all solved. And so when I was writing the book, I mean, you know, I, it was before 2016 and I was thinking, you know, I was already starting to think, you know, this narrative is wrong. There's something else going on here. Not just voter ID laws, cuts to early voting, Shelby v. Holder, obviously, people saying there's nothing wrong here. But even just the way the parties were trying to mobilize and in some ways failing to mobilize, especially Latino and Asian American voters. And right. so, you know, before 2016, when I started writing the book, I thought, this is going to be framed as, you know, there's been some successes, African-American turnouts up, but still a lot more work to do with Latino and Asian mm-hmm. turnout. 
And I think that after 2016, obviously the narrative shifted to talk a lot more about, you know, um, the fact that a candidate who ran effectively a, you know, a white nationalist campaign, ignoring, you know, you know, minority voters in a way that even far exceeded Romney, McCain, any Republican up to that point, you know, really said that's not what he was interested in, you know, that he was going to mobilize this kind of rabid, you know, white racist base could win, you know, against a candidate who, you know, was at least attempting to carry the legacy of Obama. To me, that was a puzzle that needed answers. And so I think the book transformed into something that was, you know, much more saying, you know, we thought we had this problem solved. Campaigns thought they didn't need to invest in, especially African-American voters anymore. Well, they do, Mm -hmm. and they still do. And I think, you know, going forward, they need to in 2020 as well. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. And I really want to get into that. But first, you mentioned John Lewis and your book opens with a quote by him. And I just want you to see I have my paper with John on the top. So I also want to read you. I want to read the quote you wrote. So in your book, you discuss the interconnectedness of voting rights, which I absolutely love. And all my discussions today show you that that is absolutely true. And the quote you say is we have come too far. We have made too much progress and we're not going back. We're going forward. That's why we all must go to the polls in November and vote like we never have ever before. So before we get into the minutia of your book, I would love to know what uh, John's work meant to you. And now you're in Atlanta. Um, am I allowed to say that you're in Atlanta now? I'm almost in Atlanta. I'm, I'm moving this week. Okay, I was I was Atlanta. I would love to know what his work meant to you and how it impacted your work. You know, so um, as I just you know mentioned, I'm about to move to Atlanta. Um, it's a move that we planned you know over a year ago, and um, you know I'll just say I was very excited. As I mentioned, I think some of you saw on Twitter, very excited to be John Lewis's constituent to live in his district. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, you know, I, we all knew that there might not be much time left with his cancer. Um, but, you know, um, that was something that I was, you know, hoping to have the honor of, of doing. And, you know, it was just a couple of weeks too late. But, you know, I'll say that, um, you know, growing up in school as a teenager, learning U.S. history, even growing up here in Indiana, you know, you learn about the civil rights movement. You learn about Dr. Mm-hmm. King. And, um, you know, that really resonated, you know, as someone who identifies as Chicano, I I think, you know, I saw the interconnectedness of struggles there and really said the civil rights struggle is about all of us. Um, But, you know, it wasn't that long after. It's pretty early, late in high school, early in college when, you know, the names like, you know, Dr. King were joined by people like John Lewis, um, also Fannie Lou Hamer, of course, but also thinking about the voting rights struggle as being, you know, inherent, especially, you know, um, later in the years of, you know, Dr. King's uh, work, you know, he really saw the vote as, as empowering equal for all. And I think, you know, John Lewis, hopefully you can hear me here, but, you know, John Lewis was, um, you know, a, a champion, um, a champion in that struggle. And so, you know, things like Selma, um, Edmund Pettus Bridge, Bloody Sunday were images that I really, you know, learned about at an early age and learned about that struggle. So when I was writing the book, you know, it was very easy for me to say, you know, this is the person that I want, you know, to start the book with. And that struggle is 
the struggle that leads to the gains and the work that we still have today. So, you know, his legacy, you know, um, is really a servant of the people, a servant of God as well, but a servant of the people, um, I think, resonates with all of us and inspires us to do more. I agree. And thank you. Those were lovely words that you just said about John Lewis. Um, I will say with your book, there are so many entry points into it. So I was trying to distill, like, what would be the first entry point? And I think one of the main entry points is talking about this minority white turnout gap. So I wanted to give, I want you to kind of give context to what that means, um, because it seems to be like the crux of your books. So yes, please explain away. Sure. So, you know, my book, the title, The Turnout Gap, you know, implies differences in rates of voter turnout. Now, as I'm sure you know, and many of your viewers know, every election cycle, there's always a headline. And it's uh, in New York Times, Reuters, AP, whatever it is, and it says, record number of, you know, Latino or Latinx voters this year, record number. Mm-hmm. Now, the Latinx population in the U.S. is growing, right? It's been growing for a mm. long time. So every year is going to be a record in terms of the number of voters. But the gaps that I'm discussing are gaps in the rate of voter turnout. That's the percent of people who could vote versus the percent of people who actually vote, right? So it's a difference in the rate of voter turnout. And the minority-wide turnout gap that I discuss is the difference in the rate of turnout for communities of color, people of color, given that they're eligible, so citizens who are of voting age or 18 or over, Sometimes, you know, we talk about felon disenfranchisement after accounting for all those things, right? The percent of, you know, people of color who vote, given that they could, is lower than the percent of non-Hispanic whites who vote, given that they could. Now, what I find is that that minority white turnout gap has been growing over time. Some of that has to do with demographic change, but is now to the point where we're talking 10, 20, for some groups, even 30 percentage points difference in the rate of turnout for whites versus those racial and ethnic minority groups. And that disparity in who votes, right, not the number, but the rate of voting leads to these tremendous political consequences, disproportionately hurts Democrats, but undermines the political power that racial and ethnic minority groups as a growing portion of the U.S. population should have. Right. And that uh, blew me away because To me, we cannot have a conversation about voter suppression without talking about the fact that there is a turnout gap. And to me, it fills out what was missing, and that is why I was so uh, excited about it. To go further into um, the minority white turnout gap, um, you say, would election outcomes change if there was no minority white turnout gap? You did just touch on that for a moment, but I would love for you to expand on that. Sure. So one of the things that I do in the book is I say, look, we see differences in voter turnout. Does it matter? Would it change anything? Right. Would it matter if, you know, turnout for Latinx population, for Asian Americans, for African Americans was equal to that of whites? And, you know, some research that's out there from 10, 20 years ago says, no, doesn't matter. Yeah, this is a problem in terms of equality. But at the end of the day, election outcomes would be the same. What I did was I looked at survey data and looked at the preferences of people who didn't vote. So I said, what if the turnout rate was equal for African-Americans, the Latinx population, Asian-Americans, and for whites, just equal? Mm -hmm. And all the people who didn't vote actually voted. 
And they voted the way that they said they would have voted if they showed up to vote, because now we have advanced mm -hmm. survey data that can show that. National survey data, and what you find is that, not surprisingly, Democrats do better, but the magnitude of the difference. So in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have won in a landslide against Donald Trump, not just in the popular vote, but also in the Electoral College. But also in the Senate, if you look at the last few midterm and presidential elections, the Senate races, been a lot of close ones, North Carolina, Florida even, other states. And what you see is a pattern that results in Democrats, if turnout was equal across racial and ethnic groups, there were no disparities, mm -hmm. Democrats would have held on to the Senate continuously since 2006. So they would have held the presidency and the Senate continuously. Talk about, could Clinton have enacted her agenda? How much was Obama hampered in the later years of his presidency by Mitch McConnell and Republicans in the Senate blocking everything he was doing? You know, blocking his Supreme Court nomination, right? Well, all that would have gone away if turnout was equal mm -hmm. between racial and ethnic groups. No one's preferences had to change. Doesn't mean a big growth in the minority population. Just if everyone voted at the same rate, at an equal rate, mm -hmm. We would have seen that big difference. So I think that tells us that these disparities in turnout matter, not just for equality between racial and ethnic groups, but also in terms of the representation that all of us, white, black, Latinx, Asian, enjoy. Absolutely. And, um, and I want people to understand that you're not ignoring voter suppression. You're saying there is another aspect of it yes, here. Yes. And so I want people to really understand that. You also wrote that white overrepresentation is growing. Again, you touched on that just a little bit, but you said it's not declining over time, such that the political preferences of whites continue to drive elections to a degree greater than that would be dictated by demographics alone. I mean, this is a stunning... Uh, a stunning assertion, and I think people need to know that because to me that means there is an incentive on both the Republican and the Democratic side to just then pursue white voters. But I, I would love for you to explain further of what that white overrepresentation is and how it kind of came to be. Yeah, so I mean, first, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I think that when we think about um, the parties, so let me start there, just following what you said. You know, parties want to win. So they're going to go after the voters that they think will lead them to victory. And they're going to go after the voters that are a large share, I find, of the potential electorate, people who they think are going to be decisive in an election, right? Mm -hmm. Now, nine times out of 10, almost everywhere, that's white voters. But because of the dynamics of voter turnout, which are in some ways impacted by who gets mobilized, also voter suppression, mm -hmm. Right? White voters make up a larger share of the voting population than of the population that could vote. And because of the growth of you know, the Latinx and Asian American population in the US, what you see is that white voters are now overrepresented. That is, there are a larger share of voters versus eligible to a degree that is bigger, right? That overrepresentation is larger than it was back in the 1960s, right? Even when African-American voters in the South were completely disenfranchised. So as the minority population's grown larger, white voters have basically held on to power, right? And exacerbated how much power they have. Of course, there's more minority voters than there were in the 1960s. So minority voters make more of an impact. But it's like, you know, it's like the way we talk about the Electoral College. 
It's like the system is set up in a way to make sure that white voters get just a little bit more of an advantage every time than they should. And I think that's the pattern that we really have to talk about when discussing voter suppression, because it shifts the incentives of parties to mobilize and run campaigns in a very particular way. It means they're going to focus on white voters. It means they're going to say these are the voters that have even more of an impact. And it means that the populations that lose disproportionately, that are on the losing side, are communities of color. And I, I think anybody who's paid attention to politics over the last forever <laughs> has noticed that that has been what the motivation is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, last election, it was about, you know, um, the disaffected white voter, the, mm-hmm. the voter, the white voter of the South. How do we get the white voter back in the fold? And when I read the turnout gap, I said, oh, my gosh, it's not about that. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're doing. But what they could do is this. And that's why. And I want to touch on. I have another question for you, but first I want to, I want you to touch on what you said about the, what about Obama. Now you did mention um, that he would have more of a mandate, but you even mentioned about when he won, um, he could have won at an even greater rate. So you mentioned something about that in your book. I, I would love my uh, listeners to hear what you said about that for, I think the 2008 election, you said he could have won a state that he didn't win. I forgot what the name of the state was. I think it, I think but it was I Missouri. So, right. you know, we, we forget about these swing states, right? So we focus so much on these swing states. And because of 2016, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, we, um, because they flipped over, like now the map has changed. But before 2016, you know, there was a blue wall. And the idea was, well, Florida, maybe Arizona, but states like Ohio, Iowa, those were swing states, right? Everything's changed now. But, you know, Obama won you know, North Carolina once, right? And, Mm. but he almost won Missouri. And it's interesting to think about, like, no one thinks of Missouri as a swing Mm -hmm. state, but with a relatively large African-American population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Obama won Indiana too, which no one thinks of as a swing state, at least no one here Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, You know, so I think it also shows that, you know, if minority turnout was equal to white turnout, the understandings of, um, you know, which states are in play would shift as well. And we're seeing a little bit of that with the idea that like Texas turning blue is dependent, at least in part, at least one path, probably the easier path to victory is about mobilizing Latinx voters, right? Mm -hmm. Who face really disproportionate voter suppression in a state like Texas, right? right? Historically have not, you know, surprisingly enough, even by the Democrats have not done the groundwork to mobilize that community. And I think that's what's important to note from the book is that it's, it's not just a story about voter ID laws or about Republicans suppressing votes. It's also the incentives of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party to, like you said, focus on white voters, on those white rural voters, on the white working class, right? That mm-hmm. is causing a lot of these disparities in turnout, too. So I, I think that when we, you know, when we look at things like even the Obama years, which we, we think about, you know, especially now and say, wow, I wish we were back, back to the way things were back then. You know, right. there were a lot of problems then too. And of elections course. could have looked really different um, if the turnout gap didn't exist. I agree. And, and something that is probably one of my favorite parts of the book, and I think one of the most important aspects, and it's not something that I'd really thought of before your book, was you talked about uh, the perception of, of, of one's vote 
mattering, of feeling that one's vote matters. And because I think that every election year you hear the stump speeches just saying, just come on out. So broad based, it's not specific, it's not targeted. They're not really actually going into these communities. Um, I also always find it a little insulting that they'll have someone come out and say something very poorly in Spanish and then think that they've done the work, yeah. you know? Yeah. So to me, I thought it was really wonderful that you talked about this idea about um, one's vote mattering. So if you could talk a little bit about that. So, you know, when I was starting to write the book, I was looking for answers. I was trying to figure out why these disparities persisted. You know, you know there's obviously, you know, voter ID laws, um, you know, cuts to early voting, Shelby v. Holder decision undermining the Voting Rights Act. You know, we know that there are problems, but look, compared to what John Lewis was having to do, right? Right. The, right. the rampant, you know, like just, you know, beating people on the you know, doorstep of the courthouse kind of stuff that was going on, the fire hoses that we saw in Birmingham and other cities in the South, you know, it, it, it's not to that degree, right? And I think that's important to say. And even someone like John Lewis, and certainly President Obama, I have a quote from him saying, you know, the uh, other, it's difficult to vote, but not as difficult as it was. So, you know, we right. should be able to overcome that. He was speaking to African-American mm -hmm. voters. And, you know, I looked at that and I said, well, you know, th this matters, you know, on the margins. And because these laws are, are basically racist by design and courts have said they're racist by design, we should stop them. But there's a bigger problem here. There's a bigger problem. And it's about thinking about why we vote. And first, you know, one of the things that I've observed in political science research, I think, points to this is we vote because we're asked to. You know, voting takes time. It's costly. And it's hard for us to imagine those who are really connected to politics you know, where voting is like an obligation that we have a really strong sense of duty about. But for most people, mm -hmm. especially people who don't vote, they say, look, I've got other things I have to do. And, right. and it's difficult to register. And I need help doing that or getting to the polls or figuring out who to vote for or what issues I care about. And that's where I feel like mobilization has to come in. And when people mobilize you to vote, the message is your vote counts. Your vote matters. Right. Mm -hmm. So I tried to extend that in the book and say, look, you know, where do we see pockets of high minority voter turnout, high black turnout, high Latinx voter turnout, high Asian American voter turnout? And it's mm. in exactly the places where, relative to the white population, campaigns mm. pay a lot of attention to minority right. voters. It's places like mm -hmm. John Lewis's district in Georgia, right. which is mm -hmm. heavily African American, mm -hmm. where the voters there say, you know what? Black voters matter here. Mm -hmm. States of the South. Strangely enough, right. where suppression is rampant, that's where we also mm -hmm. see high black voter turnout. Where do All we right. not see high black voter turnout? States like New York, states like right. Michigan, states like mm -hmm. Wisconsin, right? Mm -hmm. States like Pennsylvania. Those states where, despite voter suppression maybe not being as much of, not talked about quite as much as in the South, the incentives mm -hmm. to mobilize are much lower. That's where the message is not getting out to minority communities that your vote matters. And mm -hmm. white politicians, pay lip service to minority communities, but aren't doing the groundwork in between elections to say, you matter, I want your vote, but more than that, I want to represent you in politics. One of the things too that I talk to um, 
to Jacqueline and Jackie today <laughs> was about language provision, about two or three in the VRA. So when you talk about voting being better back now than it was then, that is absolutely true, right? Because the language provision didn't exist before 75. So we know that there are some improvements and there's still way so much more to go. One of the things I, I want to talk about is um, that actually ends up being part of a solution-oriented aspect to some problems that you get into in the book. Um, so you said that there were two measures that boost participation. Um, I would love to know what those are specifically. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in the book, I identify a lot of problems. The solutions are harder to come by. Um, right. Because a lot of the solutions are things like change who campaigns talk to, shift the incentives for campaigns to mobilize. And I think we, we do that. And I think what you're doing right now is an attempt to do that as well. Um, and so we need to keep, you know, talking about, um, you know, organizations like, you know, Black Voters Matter and other groups that are on the ground. Jolt Texas is doing excellent work in Texas. Very, very important. But in terms of policy solutions, um, you know, I find, you know, voter ID laws, you know, obviously, you know, designed with racist intent. Um, they're not doing anything to solve the very, very tiny amount of voter fraud, if it exists. Right. They're not combating that effectively, and they're disenfranchising minority voters. But, you know, the, the policies that I think could really help, um, one of them is, as you mentioned, the language provisions of the Voting Rights Act. So it, English is not the official constitutionally or otherwise mandated language of the United States. If your first language is not English and you're a citizen and eligible to vote, you should have the right to vote in the language that you're most comfortable with. So I think for Latinx and Asian American voters, you know, being able to vote, but especially register to vote mm -hmm. and navigate the very complex laws and regulations for where to vote, how to register, what you need in your mm -hmm. native language is very important for increasing turnout for those groups. And I have some studies that show that. But the other policy I want to talk about um, relates to registration is automatic or automated voter registration, AVR, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a couple of years ago, a lot of people were saying, why aren't Democrats doing this? In all the states where they have right. a trifecta, where they control the governorship and state legislatures, make it easier to vote. Make it easier mm -hmm. to register to vote and register everybody who's eligible, you know, just, just do it. You, mm -hmm. you have, they have records, government knows where you live, um, just register and make it easier for people to transfer that registration when they move too. And I think mm -hmm. that has the potential to shape, not just um, make it easier to vote, but also to shift the incentives for campaigns. Because if you're not registered to vote, mm -hmm. it's hard for them to see you. Right. It's hard for them to know that you're a potential voter that could get mm -hmm. registered. You know, once you get on that registration list, campaigns have a lot easier time of contacting you and sending you mail or having someone go to your door and say, you need to make sure your registration is updated. Do you have what you need to vote? Here's why your vote matters. So right. that AVR, I think, is a really interesting policy because it not only makes it easier at the individual level, as a voter level, but also makes it easier for the campaigns to do that mobilization work. Right. I agree. Um, I, I, it befuddles me that that they didn't make that. When you say that, it makes me wonder why governors didn't make that a priority when they have the chance to. 
You know, it's our uh, governor here in New York, Andrew Cuomo, you know, he's gotten a lot of praise how he's handled the, the pandemic here. And, and I agree with that. But uh, voting rights was a big struggle here in New yeah. York State. It's It's been a, a long slog to, to move forward. Now, this is what I wonder. Um, what advice would you give to local campaigns or even federal campaigns of how to age communities? I will say this. When I was talking to Jacqueline again uh, with NARF um, about uh, reaching out to Native voters, she said she feels that some people are intimidated about moving into another culture that is outside of their own. Um, Doesn't seem like a good enough excuse for people not to connect, but I was wondering what advice that you would give. You know, it's it's really funny. Um, I get this question a lot. sometimes from, you know, white political consultants, uh, which is kind of the point and leads to the comment I'll make, which is yeah. just hire people of color. There to, you go! Yeah! Like, you know, like, uh, um, if you are saying, wow, it's really, you know, we don't have anyone who can do like a, um, you know, Spanish language ad communication or canvassing, um, or, or knows, you know, when a bilingual mailer might be better or actually worse sometimes for Latinx yeah. voter turnout mobilization than something else. You know, um, we don't really know what to do. It's like, well, talk to people <laughs> who do know what to do. Um, right. You know, think about reaching out and, you know, to the, to the organizations that are on the ground doing this work. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's always some, like, I, don't get me wrong, I don't want to disparage any campaigns running in 2020 um, for the Democratic Party specifically, but I, I will say that you know the resources that are spent on, for example, TV and mm-hmm. some digital um, versus the amount that's going to the actual grassroots community right. organizing based between elections work, right, is really pretty astounding. Um, you know, I'm thinking about things like you know Jolt Texas I mentioned before, the excellent work that they're doing. Where you know I was I was talking to someone from Jolt um, doing voter mobilization at Quinceañeras in Texas. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 um, you know the young woman doing the, the Quinceañera girl um, you know isn't old enough to vote yet, fifteen, right? But right. Um, you know mobilizing her family and saying how important the vote is. You know that's mm-hmm. a kind of culturally competent messaging that political right. scientists have known for a long, long time is mm-hmm. much more effective. Right. Mm-hmm. Then bringing in that campaign consultant who says, I have the new, you know, randomized controlled trial experiment that says this gets a one percent boost. Right. That's that's good work. Right. We need to do that. And we need to do a lot more of that. But mm-hmm. I think it has to be paired with the, the, the culturally competent and conscious approach that mm-hmm. frankly requires ceding power to yeah. communities of color, to people of color, to women of mm-hmm. color or the backbone mm-hmm. of the Democratic Party, and saying, what do we need to do? And what resources do we need to give you to do the work that we mm-hmm. know you know how to do already? So I would say, you know, when I think about the lessons of 2016, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Especially in northern states like Michigan and Wisconsin. You know, Hillary Clinton and the campaign knew that black voters were important. But it was about mm-hmm. giving the resources to the people on the ground who had been yes. in those communities, who were entrenched in those communities not for six months, not for a year, but for a very long time and making sure that mm-hmm. they had what they needed. And that's what I'm hoping um, campaigns do, you know, across the political spectrum 
um, in, in 2020. I hope they do too. Um, I have, I can say, um, that I know some are not, <laughs> but I do hope that, uh, when I send some of them this, that I'm going to like clip what you just said and just send it to all of them. <laughs> so they understand. I don't think a lot of them have ever been to a quinceanera. I can't tell you how many I went to. I didn't have one, but uh, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, I went to, so I wasn't, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I was at bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs and quinceaneras and I was at all, you know, so I, I guess sometimes it's out of my purview that someone would have an intimidation, but you said it perfectly. I know that you have to pack. So I want to ask you one more question. Sure. I want to know. Um, I want to know what your next project is. I know you must be working on something now. I know you're getting ready to go to Emory, I believe, correct? Yes. And you're going to be there with Dr. Carol Anderson. Yes, are you going to meet right. her? Yes, I just was talking to her today. I know she's amazing. We haven't met yet. Um, I'm hoping we meet soon. When I got recruited yes. to Emory, um, that was a big incentive to move yes. like she's there and even though yeah. you know we you know she has been at the forefront of really understanding voter suppression mm. um you know and and something that i talk about in my book and say you know we need to combat voter suppression and do this work that we just talked about of doing the mm. mobilization on the ground it's a two-pronged solution i'm Absolutely. hoping we can work together that that's not the next project yeah. i won't you know put yeah, her out call I her will, out on that but you know i am hoping no, no, i know i will say this no, I know that she would love that. I mean, just having a conversation with her today, she wants solutions. She wants that. And so I, I, I feel like you're going to be the closest of friends. So I look forward to seeing that friendship bloom. Yeah. But I also want to know about your next project as well. Yeah. So um, I had a piece uh, that came out in the Washington Post a few weeks ago okay. that talked about um, the rise in the number of candidates of color uh, that are running for office in, in congressional primaries, that are mm -hmm. winning primaries, that are going to be mm -hmm. on the ballot in November, and that are probably going to win. You know, building on 2018, which saw a growth in the number of women and minority candidates winning and running, right? Mm -hmm. 2020, mm -hmm. I, you know, this is like a um, spoiler alert. I think we're going to see a big jump, especially if there's a Democratic wave. In the representation, yeah. of, I hope so, right, of communities of color, mm -hmm. that's going to change Congress. And that's the next project is really understanding that change, um, really understanding, you know, where are the places where candidates of color are running now and winning now that people thought they could never win and run in before? How mm -hmm. do things like party play into that? And it's not just the Democrats. I mean, we have to talk about candidates like Mia Love, who won mm -hmm. in a heavily white district in Utah, right? Mm -hmm. Republican, mm -hmm. conservative Republican. Right. She lost right. in a subsequent election to a white Democrat, yeah. right, in Utah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, her success really says that the electorate might be willing to vote for minority candidates mm -hmm. as long as they share mm -hmm. their party. And I think right. that lesson is kind of obvious when we're thinking about the Democrats. Maybe it's there mm -hmm. for the Republicans, too, because we're also seeing a growth of minority Republicans. But I want to know mm -hmm. about, you know, what does this mean for Congress? And especially right. for the House of Representatives, you know, mm -hmm. where the uh, kind of the way, you know, the Senate has this issue with the states and every state getting two. But the House might really be, you know, representative of the people in a way it never has been before. So I want to try and understand that and think mm -hmm. about 
you know, what this is going to mean for the policies that are getting passed, hopefully, uh, you know, John Lewis Voting Rights Act, right? If yes, yes. President, and if mm -hmm. the Democrats win the Senate, I mm -hmm. think that will happen. But really thinking about what this means for the future of a representation of our communities mm -hmm. um, that for so long have, again, been put, you know, kind of on the back, um, been behind the scenes and been subject to, yeah. under the Trump administration, you know, um, really a terrible slew of policies. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, the books, that, that new project sounds thrilling and I look forward to reading it once you get it. I really, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really admire your work and um, I'm excited for the students at Emory and also I'm excited for you because I lived in Atlanta and I love Atlanta. I'm going to introduce you to some friends when you get there. Great. You probably won't have much time because of, of how busy you'll be, but I will say this, the food, the food, Bernard, you're going to be so happy. It's so good everywhere. So I hope you and your family stay safe while you're traveling there. And thank, thank you. you so much. Really, I appreciate this interview. Thank I will talk so to you on the internet. Me. Of yes. course. And I hope once you get settled, we can talk again before the election happens. Yes, that would be perfect. I'd love to. Okay, excellent. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to this special season of Obscene, election coverage and voter information. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.